Tonight is going to be fun because you're actually going to have to participate. So for once, I'm going to get to relax and, and watch how you can engage yourselves. Uh, but why we're going to do that is because hiring is really not a, a sport that you can engage in from the sidelines. You have to jump right in and be part of the action. And so uh, tonight, what we'll start with is a series of things that will set up um, a follow-on from last week's discussion about vision, mission, and culture. And as the basis for hiring, culture, as we talked about last week, is very critical because it establishes who you are and how you behave and what kind of people you're going to want to build around you into a team that can continue that culture and can be additive to it rather than dilutive uh, to it. So I can't go over all of that, of course, again. But for those of you who missed it last week, uh, just go to Startup Secrets or mjscock.com and you'll be able to find that um, material from last week on the culture, uh, vision, and mission. Tonight's focus, therefore, is on what are the practical elements of hiring. And the reason we ended up splitting this workshop up is because the number one thing I hear from startups is that they're challenged with hiring the right people. And, by the way, making sure that those hires stick. Both points are absolutely critical. Uh, you might feel like you've hired the right person, but if they don't stick around to be part of your business and actually ultimately you know, it's success, then obviously it wasn't the right fit. And that can be very costly. But to bring this to life, I've got two great guests, uh, both of whom spend their lives doing this. And in fact, uh, to introduce them both, uh, I'll have them stand up in a second. Russ is actually a 25-year veteran of the HR profession. And in fact, although he runs HR at iRobot today, uh, his role has been very eminent, actually, in our local community, all the way back from Lotus, uh, when Lotus was one of the giants in our, our industry, through one of the companies that we were lucky enough to fund, Phase Forward, that he took public, and then now, for example, more recently at, at uh, iRobot. And there's an, a number in between there, too. Uh, so we're very lucky to have uh, Russ here. And Russ, we'd just like to stand up so people know who you are. Welcome, Russ. Now, um, iRobot might be considered a larger company today, although it was once a startup. So I'm going to encourage all of you to, to uh, you know, hear that story. But I also wanted you to hear from somebody who's in the thick of hiring uh, and, in fact, is the fastest growing startup in uh, this region at the moment and also has been sort of noticed as the fastest growing software startup in the country. And that's Acquia. And so we have Eric Gaffin, if you'd just like to stand up and show yourself. Welcome, Eric. Um, so you really would applaud if you'd, I should have told you this first. Uh, so Eric has had to go through 16,000 interviews to make 180 hires in the last year. So that gives you, you, know, that's, that gives you a sense of uh, how quickly uh, you know, Acquia is growing. And that is not an easy task. So we've got Eric here tonight so he can share with you, how do you do that? How do you manage that kind of you know, process? And what is it that it takes to actually hire the right people? So thank you both for joining us. Uh, you're really the stars for tonight's show. And I encourage all of the audience here to just recognize that this is nothing more than a framework for you to get engaged on the topic. You know my style. I don't believe that I have answers here. I have a basis for discussion. Uh, I encourage you to ask questions, particularly of our two guests tonight. Uh, and then, as I said, I want to leave time for you to actually engage in a little interviewing yourselves. So tonight's agenda specifically, I'll give you some background. I'm going to give you some tools. And then we want to get to the workshop. And we've given you out some questions. You don't need to look at them now, but I will take you through some of these so you can get a sense of what the tools are. So first of all, you know I always like to ask this question. Why even bother with this? I mean, why did you all show up? Why do we have a full house tonight? I mean, there's obviously a reason that you have in your mind. Uh, mostly what I hear from startups is, you know, we just can't find the quality of talent. But I actually don't think that that's the problem. There's plenty of quality talent around Boston. The real challenge is finding the fit. Uh, and so as I like to say, the most important capital is human capital. 
So it's not the, the capital you raise from me, it's what you do to find the talent that enables you to build the company that you really have conviction around. And this piece is the most obvious thing I'm going to say, and yet it is so fundamental. You are what you hire. You can try to be 50 things based upon a product, but if you don't have the people to take that product to market, to engage your audience, and to build, for example, the relationships with your customers, service and support them successfully, you have nothing. And so every hire you make, whether you like it or not, becomes, if you will, a Lego block in the model that builds your business. And so tonight is about establishing a premise that is super important. And I'm going to start with one which is an oldie but goldie, as I would say, which is the first thing you should realize is that A's hire A's. In other words, A players know how to hire A quality candidates. But the bad news is if you hire B's, if you find somebody who's not an A player, they hire C's. They always hire underneath themselves because the very fact that they're a B player causes them to say, I don't want to be challenged by somebody. So they tend to hire people who are not going to challenge them. And guess what? They hire C's. And I don't need to tell you this, but C's cost you your company. And it's a very slippery slope. And so even though you're going to find yourself challenged many times to say, but I've got to fill this post. You know, we're desperately understaffed in services or support, and there aren't enough people to pick up the phones. If you find yourself in that slippery slope and you say, oh, well, I'm just going to get a body in the seat and I'm going to hire that B because it'll fill the gap for now, trust me, that's a mistake. And so tonight is about trying to help you understand how to avoid that mistake and to establish a culture, as we talked about last week, and in particular a hiring practice that gets you over that and gives you the confidence actually to look beyond what might sometimes feel like an impossible void to fill of the experience, knowledge, and skills. And instead, look for things like aptitude and attitude, which can be just as important, actually, in finding the right hire. So A's does not mean that they're A students. And it doesn't mean that it's all about just getting, for example, the best grad out of MIT or uh, you know, the, the Sloan School, wherever it might be. Uh, I should have said Harvard. But um, the point is, wherever you come from, um, you know, there's this bias around certain talents and skills that people have. So we're going to try to quash that tonight. Now, I also want to make it really clear that this is not just me talking about this stuff, uh, that the wrong hires cost you your company. You will obviously recognize this. When you lose great people, you lose everything that they know. And that's not just their literal knowledge. It's also who they know, their networks, their connections with their customers, the relationships they have internally. You basically lose a piece of the fabric of your company. And if you're a startup, and you know, imagine you're you know, five people. You just lost one person. That's 20% of your entire value as a company. And trust me. Even when you get big, and this is a stat from the MIT Sloan Review from very big companies, this is a very significant impact. In fact, even for just 1% of employees being lost, it's a $25 billion assessed cost. So people can measure this stuff, but I think you know it intuitively. It's really painful when you make the wrong hires. Of course, it can be fatal if it's something like hiring the wrong founder. So I know a number of you, for example, here are still building your founding teams. This is really essential, therefore, that you take time to understand this. And I'm, I'm going to put it in the, the simplest of senses tonight. It's about, like a lot of things, developing both the art and the science of it. The reason I want you to engage in the actual practice tonight is because that's the art. And we're going to try to, to talk a little bit about some of the science of it. So let me jump right in. Um, the first thing I'll say is that hiring sometimes feels like it's, ah, you just sit down and have an interview and you kind of get to know somebody. Uh, but actually, it turns out it's really all in the details. Uh, the details matter. Like you know, what it is that you're actually looking for in terms of somebody's experience matters. Because if you don't set them up for success, finding a fit for their experience, no matter what their attitude is, 
they're not going to be able to apply themselves effectively. So I'm going to start out by telling you the three key things that I think we should look for. And literally, if, if I was you know, forced to say, in my experience over 30 years, what do I really want to make sure happens in a hire? It's first of all, can they be successful at the job? In other words, are you setting up their skill set to be in your particular role a successful fit? Will they have the right set of things to bring so that when they engage with you, they can be successful? If you don't set them up to be successful, you can't blame them. You've got to look at yourself and say, why did I mismatch? What did I learn from that? What were the things that I thought I needed but I didn't find? The second thing is probably even more fundamental, and we'll talk about that uh, because it's a softer challenge, but will they really love this job? Do they want to come to work every day, um, fired up about it? And in the end, the energy has to come from within them because no matter how much you incent them or no matter how much opportunity you have, if it's not something that they can internally relate to, it's not going to be sustainable. And startups are hard work, as we all know, and they go through tough times. And when they do, that will be the thing that will be the determinant of whether they really are successful at the job, is that they still believe in it, they have their own convictions for their own reasons. Now, the last one really is, is playing to the, the cultural elements that we talked about last time, which is, you know, will they fit and reinforce your culture? And um, as I've mentioned last week, Culture is a funny thing in the sense that you, know, you may not be able to measure it, but as you saw when we talked about it last week, it has a massive impact. There's a reason why those companies that are best to work for consistently outperform all others. When you look over a decade period, as I mentioned to you, they outperform by 300% uh, their, com you know, their comparables. So we know it has an impact, and so obviously we want people who can reinforce that impact and it can reinforce our culture. So now let's talk about what are the elements that go, associate, go along with that. I've put up EKS, IQ, and CQ, and I'm going to explain those for you right now. So first of all, answering the first question, can they be successful at the job? EKS is just an acronym, and you know I use acronyms, uh, but it's kind of a fun one because we could always go around and say, okay, how was somebody's EKS? And it was sort of like, okay, everybody understood their EKS. Okay, their EKS were, what was their experience, what was their knowledge, and what were their skills? Now, why do I split those three out? Anybody got any idea? I mean, what's different about experience versus skills? Anybody got any ideas? So you can learn things and just be intellectually aware, but not be efficient or know how to necessarily execute on those things well. Plus, you can any knowledge you take in, some people just compartmentalize knowledge rather than integrate the knowledge. Mm, well said. Very good. Somebody else had a... Um, uh, a point up the front here. I would say that skills is a method to lead into experience, but they're not necessarily the same thing. So, for example, I may not have a lot of experience in a specific type of coding um, or specific facet of the company, but if I have the skills to program, for example, that's something that's really valuable. So it's not Excellent. necessarily. Excellent. I think both of your comments are really helpful to, to bring this to light. So let's use the coding example. You might have absolutely the best C-sharp programming skills, but you may have had no experience building a back-end system for, for example, a huge scalable website using those skills. So you've got the skills, but you've applied them in a completely different way. You maybe applied them, for example, in some mobile app as opposed to a huge web scale app. So skills might be very different to experience. And, and the classic thing that we see people doing here is confusing the following. They say, well, this guy was an absolutely brilliant programmer, but we don't actually think about 
what is that programming experience going to line up with in what the task is we're going to set them? And so you've got to think about how to separate those things. Now, skills are a very interesting thing. Most of these things, people go down and they, you know, the bottom of their resume, well, I did, you know, C Sharp and I did Java and I did PHP and Python and Ruby and, you know, on and on and on. There's this long list, okay? <clears throat> Does that mean you're a good programmer? Anybody? I mean, how many times have you read a resume that they've got a long list of things? Does that mean they're a good programmer? Lots of people shaking their head. I'd like a no or a yes. No. Why not? Not necessarily. Say more. They have a laundry list of, uh, of prerequisites and, the, and, and languages under their belt. Um, yeah, they might have the skills, but if they don't know how to apply that, if they, as that gentleman over there said, compartmentalizes it, uh, they, and they don't have that malleable uh, intellect that they can actually apply it at the, at the problem at hand, that synthesis, um, then those skills are really dead to you as someone who wants to hire them. Like, yep. right? like you, could, you could access those skills through the, through the internet or, or through a book. You want someone who can, who, can, who can mold it around the situation, problem at hand. Very good. OK. So thank you very much. That was well said. And I didn't want to add to it. So now let's bring in the third piece, this knowledge piece. Let's say that the actual problem that they're solving is a healthcare IT problem. And it's very deep in the domain of healthcare. Now let's imagine that they actually do have experience building this web backend. And they have the right skills because they're good programmers. But they're ta tackling a completely different domain to one they've ever done before. All they've ever done before has got nothing to do with healthcare. How does that sound? Well, it's different, right? So your domain expertise um, is, or your knowledge, excuse me, in this case, just to be spe specific about it, might be very important. Because healthcare has a whole sense of a, a bunch of regulations. For example, one of the companies that uh, Russ was involved with phase forward he might talk about tonight. There were some very specific domain requirements. In fact, let me ask you if I may to jump in on that. When you were recruiting for phase forward, how important was the domain expertise of healthcare? And maybe you could mention a little bit what they did. So phase forward uh, was one of the first companies that took uh, the uh, FDA process of drug approval, uh, the, the uh, clinical trial process, and moved it from paper to cloud-based uh, process. So that uh, you were enrolling thousands of patients in the program, and the doctors used to keep track on paper, and then they would forward it on to the, uh, to the drug company, and the drug company would correlate the data and do the analysis and see if it had any efficacy at all. Uh, and we changed the paradigm for that uh, with our company. So uh, when we started recruiting for software developers, we, we, could find the, we could find the skills, we could find experience with the skills, but we didn't have the domain expertise because there were, there were their regs uh, uh, and the FDA requirement that have to be coded into the software, had to be coded into the software. There were uh, pr uh, privacy requirements that are how the data can be moved, not just within the application, but within the application across geographic borders. So we were, had to look for people that had that level of knowledge and, or in a, either a similar application base or, or had worked in a healthcare setting with the, with the kind of uh, FDA requirements that we needed to code. Perfect. So. <coughs> Thank you, Russ. Yep. So, so what you're hearing is, and FaceForward, by the way, was a very successful company, went public, et cetera. But I can tell you uh, it wasn't easy always hiring, at exactly as you're going to find, to get all three of these things. Uh, you know, to find somebody who was really skilled as a programmer, had the experience of, for example, the kind of web scale that we're dealing with, and also the domain knowledge to be able to apply and deal with things like these regs. So this is the bad news. 
you very rarely get the perfect candidate that has all three. And so we're going to try to help tonight figure out, well, what do you do in those circumstances? Now, you notice that I put, where applicable, the IQ. Because it sort of goes without saying that you're going to try to find smart people. I mean, nobody wants to hire dumb people, so that's kind of easy. We all agree on that. The problem is, what does smarts mean? And uh, there are lots of different ways of breaking that down. The typical one, and the one that I find that is the most uh, daunting, is you know, to try to in in challenge people on intellect. But it's very rarely the one that is actually the driver of success. In fact, uh, I'll now relate my, one of my own challenges, which is that if you hire only really, really smart people with the highest IQ, and that's all you bring into a team, you very rarely end up building a great team. In fact, I've had to fire, unfortunately, some of the smartest people because they precisely believe that the smartest people in the room and they have no interest in teaming with other people who they think might challenge them. Uh, and it just makes them very difficult to work. Welcome, Gary. Um, he's nodding in the back. Another HR professional. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting about this is what do we determine to be, therefore, the right kinds of, of attributes for a, for a hire? So bear that in mind, and we'll hopefully, hopefully bring it out in some of the questions. So this is the first setup. Can they be successful at the job? Do they have the right experience, knowledge, and skills for the job you're looking to, to bring them into? Now, will they really love the job? This one should be easy, and yet it's one that I find people don't spend enough time on. So I'm going to try to make sure by the end of tonight that if you go home with nothing else, you understand how to interview for this question. Because in my experience, this can be even more important than any other piece of this equation. So first of all, can you find out what people are really passionate about? I think you can probably tell from the way I deliver this class, I'm pretty passionate about entrepreneurship. But nobody taught me about entrepreneurship. I just learned it because I was determined from the early age of whatever it was, uh, embarrassingly teen age, uh, to figure out what it was that actually made it possible to build companies. And so you know, here I am with absolutely zero qualifications. And guess what? I figured my way through it. Somebody has a question at the front here. Um, did your love of entrepreneurship precede your knowledge of coding and your work in web development? Like, so for example, did you learn coding so that you could be an entrepreneur, or did you just kind of fall into it? So my story isn't as interesting as that, because I'm too old to even admit this most of the time, but we're going to get to it. Um, the web didn't exist. There was no such thing as a PC. And when I learned coding, I was programming the world's first programmable calculator, the HP 65. And that was the only thing I could program because you know, it was the only thing I could get my hands on. Yeah. But my passion for solving problems, as it turned out, uh, translated into, hey, well, what could I do if I could automate that on things like programmable calculators or what became PCs later? And, and my point is that nobody told me that I couldn't do something. And I was passionate enough to just keep at it until I figured it out. And so if I was just trying to draw out some lesson for this, because everybody has their own experience, it's this, that ultimately passion very often and persistence often overcome almost every other attribute that we were looking for if somebody can be set up to obviously apply whatever they have in their limited experience, knowledge, or skills to a problem. So it's really that. And, and I don't need to say this except to say um, when you're interviewing, what you're really trying to do is what I was starting to describe there is find a fit for what they love to do. Because it's like putting fuel in the gas tank at that point. You know, if you've got that energy that they're bringing to the, the, uh, the table, their passion, their real persistence, their real desire, their strong you know, conviction that they can make a difference, then what you really need to do is put the fuel in the right gas tank and just you know, set them on the right road. And guess what? You know they're going to make it at that point. What I worry about is that I see a lot of hires are made the exact opposite way. 
you hire the best, brightest guy, but they're not interested in the problem you're solving. And they're not interested in the domain that you're working in. And guess what? At some point, they would kind of like peter out because it's just they can't relate to it. They can't engage with it. So this question is actually sometimes the first and the only question I ask in an interview. Now, if you think I'm kidding, talk to some of the people I've interviewed. Because I won't let people out of an interview. <laughs> Russ is putting his hand up. I did interview him. Uh, I won't let somebody out of an interview until I've understood what makes them tick. And that means, what are they passionate about? So here's an example of how this question might start. It's, OK, I've uh, met you for the first time. You know, t tell me what gets you out of bed in the morning. What do you love doing? Uh, what is it that you're excited about? What's your perfect day look like? I go on and on and on and on. Now, these should be easy questions to answer, right? I mean. Tell me what you're passionate about. Well, isn't that an invitation to speak forever? Should be, right? Here's what I find. Unfortunately, very few people actually stop and ask themselves that. You know, we kind of get thrown into whatever field of work we're in, or guess what, worse than that, like a lot of us, we have to take a job because we need to pay the mortgage, or we just got out of school and we got to pay off our debt. And you know what? The job we wanted wasn't available, and now we're doing something, and we're kind of in that rut. And Next thing we know, we're doing something that actually we're paying the bills by as opposed to really living life by. When it really works, you don't even ask that question. You're having so much fun at work that it is life. And you're so excited about your job that your life is something that you're passionate about. Not your job or your life. Your life and your work are one and the same. They feel great. And there are many times I walk around companies and I can see it. I can literally palpably see that people are coming to work because they're so excited about it that they feel this is their life. They build their communities there. They love working together, so they show up every day you know, excited about what's the next great thing they can do together. And that's palpable. By contrast, I can tell you, when I go on site visits to see some startups, their stats might be up and to the right on their charts. They might be doing great things, but I walk around and I go, ah, I'm not going to back this group. Because I can tell that basically there's a bunch of employees there who are doing a job. And at some point, you know what? Somebody else who's got the passionate team with all the gas in their tank is going to run right past them. It's just the way things work. So here's how this, if you like, becomes a virtuous circle. People who love what they do tend to take pride in their work. They tend to do it well. The results and the rewards all follow from it. But I will tell you, the reverse is not true. So I have never hired somebody who told me, I want to get rich. I've never hired somebody who said that. Because I don't believe that's the way it works. The way I believe it works, and again, one person's viewpoint, is that when you really love what you do, you can't help but do it well. You want to take pride in it. You want to produce great results. And guess what? When you do that, you feel like you can really make a difference. And if you're plugged into the right situation where what you do can align with what the company needs done, you're going to make a difference. And that's what good company cultures do. They set you up for success. They enable your passion to connect with the mission and vision of the company so that you're contributing in every sense, in every way that you do that. And when that happens, guess what? You're going to make a difference in the business, and it's going to be noticed, and you're going to get rewarded from it. And you're going to feel great about it, and you're going to do more of it. It's pretty obvious that when that circle continues to be fed, and it's virtuous in that way, everybody's going to win. There is no accident associated with Acquia's success. There is a specific guy who started a project that is now the large, largest open source project on the planet, Drupal, that has over 900,000 people following him. Why? Because he's really passionate about connecting and enabling people to communicate. Jump in. It's one million. One million. 
can you say a little bit more? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what, what Drupal is about as sure. a background here. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And you know, hearing Michael talk about passion, I, I saw it, I, inter I got a chance to interview with Dries, who is the founder of Drupal. Yeah, uh, who's the uh, founder of Drupal. And this, this is a guy who just believes so passionately in what he does and believes that the, the open source methodology is the way to go about business and the way that the world is going to change. I mean, it is passion. We want people who come into the organization and say, I love what you're doing. I want to be a part of that. I understand where you're going, and I want to experience that on a day-to-day -day basis. One of the best examples, our VP of engineering, uh, the question that he asks isn't about school projects. It isn't about experience. It isn't, it isn't about tell me what you've been doing in your job. It's when all is said and done for your day, and it's 10 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, and you sit down in front of your computer, what are you going to do? What are you doing then? And he wants to hear people say, I'm messing around with Python. I'm learning PHP. I'm doing this. I work on this really cool project on the side. That's what we want. We want people who have the passion that are going to, that, that are going to elevate them to levels that they, they weren't before. So. Fantastic. So if, if this is a subject that feels like it's soft, then let me make a very hard claim. The hard claim is this. If you can't find what people are passionate about and connect it to what you are trying to do as a business, you will not make great hires. It's as simple as that. Because the connection between people's own motivation and what you are trying to do needs to be as closely aligned as possible. The minute it's off one degree, it becomes a mile very quickly in a startup because you grow so quickly. So uh, I did an interview, actually, and I won't embarrass the guy because he's in the room right now, um, earlier today. And um, it was a very short interview, but the thing I was very quickly aware of was that this gentleman had a real interest to go do a startup. And so when we were talking about, well, what do you want to do? And we talked about the potential of this particular role that was coming up. The first question I asked you know, when we got into it was, well, will this be a deflection? Will this take you off your path? Because if it's going to take him off his path, I'd rather determine that right up front. Because that path is going to be something that ultimately he'll pursue at some point. That's what he's interested in. So don't ever try to sell somebody onto your path. That isn't going to work. That's not sustainable. What does work is if you can help them uncover that what you're doing is actually really aligned with your, their passion. That becomes a great potential fit. So what's good about this is when you find people who are actually doing what they're passionate about, you get statements like this. You know, it just doesn't feel like work. I never did a day's work in my life. That's Thomas Edison. That should be you. This is a, the corollary of this is that when you're being hired, don't get sold. Make sure that you're authentic about your answers. Make sure you're explicit about what you really want to do. And if you don't know, guess what? That's okay. Tell them why you don't know. Let your interviewer get to understand what it is that you're trying to work through. For example, if you're somebody who really, really likes problem solving, but you're not sure that you want to get involved in a technical problem solving role, then explore with somebody you know, what are other examples of problem solving? It might be in customer service. Or if it turns out you really love conversation and you really like engaging customers, but you're not good at selling, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for you, for example, to work in PR. There are lots of ways that your vocational talents can be applied 
But the most important thing is that you authentically both expose them and that the interviewer listen for them and try to match them to what the job at hand is. And that's the great skill in interviewing. So you heard Chris is the name of our VP of Engineering at Acquia who asked that question. One of his questions, one, one of mine is uh, this one, which is, if this was your last day at work, what would you want to do? You, you know it's all over after today. What would you want to do? You know, you have 24 hours to go just do the craziest thing you wanted to do. But it's today. Go seize it. What is it? And you know what? That probably is at the heart of what you're excited about. And every day should feel like your last day because you don't know whether it is or not. So you might as well go after it uh, like it's your last day. And you might as well find that thing that you're so excited to do that if today was the last day, you'd go out feeling proud. Yeah, I did it. Thank God. And you know, you got run over by a bus tomorrow. Sorry to hear it, but hey, at least it was great news. You know, you can say you lived your passion. But that's exactly what this is about. Now, I unfortunately, again, find that this is hard because you know, a lot of what, what I'm talking about is more than a science. So let's talk about this in a more practical sense in, uh, in a startup. So let's get a little bit beyond EKS and IQ. I said to you, what can set somebody up for success? And, and you have to stop and think about what is your situation. For example, if you're three people, it's very different than if you're 300 people. You know, three people and trying to do all the things that a startup does, you're going to have very generalist roles. So you need people who are good Swiss army knives. Uh, or as one of my uh, founders once put it, they have to be a cross between everything in the kitchen sink and the Swiss army knife. Also, the Swiss army kitchen was the way we described it which was just a joke to say, you know, reality is startups have incredibly broad needs. People end up doing multiple jobs. When you get to be 300, I can tell you people have much more specialist needs. You have to end up specializing in, for example, specific disciplines or areas. So one of the things to figure out is, do you have people, for example, who really understand how to be flexible? I don't even have this question on here, or adaptable for an early stage. That might be a question that you, you put in if you're only three people, and you've got to do a lot together. But you need to draw that out, right? But if you're at 300, you might want to get into much more specific things and say, you know what? In this particular role, we need somebody who's got great judgment dealing with, for example, particular major accounts problems or challenges that we have. And that's, that judgment is actually more important than their intellect. So you know, that might be a question that you ask. One of the things that I'm trying to point out here is that it's situational. It's not specific to, um, you know, the, the task of saying, OK, I'm hiring a programmer or I'm hiring a salesperson. It's often situational to your particular company. What do you sell? How do you sell it? What are the expectations that you have for the way that's done? And what is it that this particular role needs? Is it, for example, that you need somebody who just absolutely is going to go above and beyond in effort? And that's going to be more important because we're looking for a particular kind of customer support agent in this case, who just will go above and beyond for customers because we don't know all the answers to the questions they're going to come up with. We're too early in our, in our, customer um, you know, in our uh, software development. We haven't got all the, the uh, knowledge base built up. So we're going to need somebody who's really going to go the extra effort to figure out these problems that we've never solved before. Those are the kinds of things you've got to think about. That's the situational piece. And as I said, again, probably the single word that's going to be most important tonight is try to find the fit. Try to think about what you're seeing in this person, whether it really fits the need you have in this particular part of the organization. So EKS, IQ, we've kind of covered a couple. This one is the one that's 
probably most determinant of whether you get a successful connection into your organization, and that's EQ. So I'm sure most people have heard of emotional quotient. But um, I'm going to get very specific tonight about why emotional quotient is so important in startups. So the, the th I'm going to pick out three examples, but I'd also be very curious if uh, Russ and Eric could bring up a couple of examples afterward too. So um, you know, we'll listen to their experience. First of all, they're up here, but why do people think EQ is important in a startup specifically? And without reading my slide, I'll bring these up. Anybody got any ideas? Why is it important to startup? Yeah, go ahead. And so, so expanding really means connecting with people. Yeah. Uh, and I think that a huge part of connecting with people is how much you understand them and how much you relate to them. Right, right. It, it's, it's so fundamental. I mean, it's, it's hard to team with anybody if you can't get along with them. I mean, it's like, you know, how, how do you do that? Well, now, let's talk about what this means in a startup. I have this term I call speed teaming. And in a startup, the really great startups are constantly forming and reforming teams around specific issues that are constantly changing in a startup. And I've watched it. When you see great startups, people quickly group cross-functionally, across whatever particular you know, rank or whatever they're, they're in. It's independent of that. They figure out how to dig into a problem. Now, Eric, we actually have a piece of our DNA, as we call it at Acquia, that we call. Uh, specifically, I think it's how you dig in. Do you want to jump in and explain what we do at Acquia and, and why this is so important at Acquia? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's it's great. So, uh, and I'll I'll get into some detail. Uh, just uh, share a little detail about the Acquia DNA and how we define ourselves later. But jump jump in and own it is a core component of the DNA of Acquia. It w I mean it very simple. We and we try to do these core DNA elements as simply as possible. It means you see a problem, go fix it. Come up with a solution. Jump in. Join a team. I mean, this, this speed teaming is, you know, I've, I've been with the company for eight, nine months, and I think I've been part of 20 different teams, and we have solved problems, and then we've dispersed and gone on to other things. Uh, and it's cross-functional. It's, uh, it's working with finance and with engineering, and it's working with product and HR. It's exciting. Uh, it is very empowering. Um, if you tell your people that if you see a problem, you jump in, you get on it, and you reward them for that, and more to the point, you don't, re you don't punish them for failure, then you're gonna be successful. And that's a huge component to it. If they jump in and they try something and it doesn't work, we don't punish them at Acquia. At Acquia, it's, a, it's an idea, if you're gonna fail, do it quickly, learn, and do it, right the se and do it correct the second time. So this is a great example, so let's bring up a specific. What would be a, an example of it? a speed teaming that occurred on a problem, if you can give a real example of a problem that required cross-functional teaming. Sure, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one that we're actually right in the middle of. So uh, one of the big problems, despite the fact that we have one million folks across the entire world that are in the Drupal community and are part of uh, Drupal, uh, the Drupal organization and contribute to the code and are committed to it, um, there's a lack of talent. Shocker, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lack of talent that we are trying to find here in the Boston area or in Portland, Oregon, or in Brisbane, Australia, wherever we're located. So we're, tr we're trying to think of a way, to, uh, a way to create talent out of almost nothing. And what we're doing is we just immediately, in the last like month, coming off of an off-site meeting, we're putting together uh, something we call Acquia U. And it is a cross-functional team of HR, 
of product, of customer solutions, of engineering, uh, to come together and figure out to put together core curriculum that we can use to teach people who aren't in Drupal now to become Drupalists, to, to teach people who maybe are LAMP stack developers and convert them into somebody who we can use for, uh, for Acquia. And this came up very quickly. We're moving on it. Uh, we're putting together curriculum. We're putting together hiring plans. And it's, it's incredibly fast. And hopefully it will work very well. Um, but if it doesn't, we're not, it's not going to be the only time we do it. Great. So here's a real world example of speed teaming that happened in the last 30 days. And now imagine that you'd made a bunch of hires who had low EQ, low self-awareness, didn't know how to connect, didn't know how to communicate, were difficult to get along with. How do you think that team would go? <laughs> I don't need to say it. Pretty poorly, right? It'd be pretty difficult to get Acquia U to happen. So EQ is incredibly important in startups. It turns out specifically because of the need to very flexibly move quickly, which is the great advantage you have as a startup. EQ is a critical element. Now let me give you an exa another example, and I've lived this one many times. As a startup, you very rarely have the right product until version three. Yep, I said version three. And I can show you many, many examples of that. What do you need between version one and version three? Anybody? And it's pretty obvious here. Feedback. Feedback. Say more, please. What kind of feedback? Is it feedback from inside? Feedback from the customers or from the market Okay, so about your product. So if you're really difficult to get along with, is that going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy, definitely. You need to, I mean, you need to be, uh, you need to be to have this emotional in, uh, intelligence in order to, co to connect with the, with the customers. Exactly. It's actually critical that, thank you very much, that you can get a connection with the customer that you're trying to engage with and that somehow you can build a relationship with them when you don't have a solution for them. In fact, most of the time, you're going to be probably inflicting pain on them while you figure out how to get something that actually is useful to them. And so you're going to have to figure out how to keep that relationship through this sort of up and down and sideways movement to actually figure out what the problem is that you're really solving for them through version one, version two, and version three. Uh, and that can be a long time. So this customer intimacy is a, another perfect example of why you've got to have EQ in your startup hires. Anybody who's engaged in that is going to need that. Now, here's the other thing. It turns out that in the sort of bigger picture of things, every one of your stakeholders is a critical piece of a startup. You know, it might be your shareholders, the first investors you get in. If they're angel friends and family, or it's you know, seed investors, are going to be super personal. Um, but even if it's VCs, you, know, you need to get these people to work with you as you work through these problems and all the expectations, et cetera, aren't all met, because they never are, trust me. Um, you need that kind of relationship. What about your suppliers? What about if you really treat your suppliers badly and you have no relationship with them? And suddenly production takes off, and you can't fulfill, and, and you ring them up and say, I need a favor. You've got no EQ connection with them. That's going to be tough. So there's just so many reasons. I could go on, but I think you get the point. In the end, every one of the things that you're doing to build your company is going to be pretty much dependent on you having EQ in your team. So it's not optional. Now, you might decide how important it is. Certain companies put it in their culture high and others don't. Some of them decide that their culture is such that they are clear-cut, ruthless, and very, very successfully going to deliver on everything that they promise, and so they don't need EQ. And I'm not going to mention companies that, that I can think of that are like that, but there are some, and that, that works for certain people. That's why we talked about culture first. But if you're that kind of company, then you don't go hiring people who are you know, high EQ that, that want the kind of touchy-feely relationship. And by contrast, 
you know, if you are a very, very, very well organized, you know, team oriented group of people that is determined to have great customer infancy, then you don't hire, you know, ruthless people who are only results driven. Jump in, please. Sure. Uh, I just want to add a couple additional, a couple additional points on this, uh, which I think is uh, a, a critical dimension of the hiring, and it's one that often gets diminished or ignored. Uh, and I, I don't, I want to highlight that important. Eric just used a great example about how it plays out at Acquia. The, if you, if you want a more uh, theoretical evaluation of it, the, there's a new book out by Patrick Lencioni, who wrote uh, the book called Five Dysfunctions, uh, called The Advantage. If you, you can, the book is relatively cheap, you can get an e-book version, read the first chapter, discard the rest. In the, in the first chapter, he talks about the difference between a smart organization and a healthy organization, and that the healthy organization includes a, a, what he defines along uh, uh, the same kind of definition, different words, as EQ. And, and the smart organization is one that has great intellect, great IQ, great EK, EKS. And that the difference is that the ones that have both succeed and the ones that only have smarts fail. It's, it's, that, it's that clear in his organization. The other thing I just say, I've worked in uh, two or three startups as a participant and advised a number of other ones. Uh, I worked in a services-based organization, startup organization called Nervewire uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, and they were so serious about this they, because of the speed teaming, their interviews were organized around it. And they asked you questions in which you, were, in which you participated in a successful organization, and they listened for the pronouns that you used. I wasn't so important as we, right? And it was a great determinant of how you organized yourself around EQ and it was related to the team. And the last thing I'll say about EQ is, it, and I think, uh, Michael was, was pointing at a great around customer agency and leveraging relationships. Every person you hire in a startup from employee number two, three, four, and five is an extension of you and what you're trying to accomplish. It's another asset that you bring to the equation. And if you have someone who's not aligned or who doesn't contribute to the EQ quotient in your organization, you're actually detracting value uh, from, from your organization, your ability to be successful. So. Excellent. Question. Sure. So, I mean, what's the weight? What's uh, for a successful company? What should be the weight of the EQ compared to the other two factors? What should be the weighting? Yeah. So, I think you, I think uh, you can, you can interview a lot of folks and find the same EKS and IQ, and I would only hire the people with the EQ. So, for me, it's the determinant whether they are or not. You know, Michael said, uh, A's hire A's. Uh, so, in my book, if you don't have the EQ, if you can't participate in a team, and I love the example you said, an inch becomes a mile because of the trajectory of your growth. If you don't have that at the core of your organization, and your organization requires you to have customers, or your organization requires you to build a product as part of a team, I, I think, going to Lencioni's book, you can't be successful unless you have it. So it's, it's, it's almost, it's rather than thinking about it as a, a waiting, I don't know if you, you, you feel the same way, but it is cultural. But for most companies, it's a bar you've got to get over. Yeah. Never mind a waiting. You know, you, you just if you don't have it, you're not going to get in the club. Yeah. Sure. But but that's cultural. So let let me. What was the book you referenced? Uh, it's called The Advantage, by uh, Patrick Lencioni, L-E-N-C-I-O-N-E. You also wrote the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is probably more recent. So. You know, let me, let me summarize on this piece, because again, I want to move us through to a place where we can actually get you engaged in this process. We've basically said, look, EKS and IQ, yeah, of course you've got to be able to assess that. But what's really important here is your EQ and CQ fit. 
Can you actually figure out whether you've got somebody here who's going to be effective within your team, within your organization? And then without going over all of last week's material again, do they fit your culture? Do they believe in the same things you do? Do they have the same ethics and values and principles? Do they align with the way you're trying to run your company? Do they believe that how you do business, not just what you do, is important? And if they do, then I, in my opinion, you're on to the right basis to assess everything else. But it is, to me at least, a bar. And for most startups, that's true because you're so dependent on your core team in the early stages. Now, we're happy to, uh, we're lucky enough at Harvard to have some, some great material on this. And uh, for those of you who haven't read it, um, I highly recommend Noam Wasserman's book uh, around uh, The Founder's Dilemmas, which talks about how critical this is in, in the early stages of founding your company. And the quote that I pulled out from that is uh, highly relevant since Twitter went public today uh, from their CEO. And that's just him stating this in his words, that the fit between personalities was so much more important than just finding people who were good. So, you know, it's, it's that that's propelled Twitter to the multi-billion dollar valuation is they figured that out. They've got a CEO who gets that, that knows how to build around that. I mean, after all, Twitter didn't start out with, you know, a multi-billion dollar market cap. They started out with 143 characters. So, you know, it's actually about what you do with the acquisition of talent that enables you to go build big companies. And it's so easy to say it, but it's so hard to do. So, bit of practical. We're going to give you a bunch of questions, but just to sort of put this in context. For IQ, my favorite question is uh, one that connects with the job that you're actually hiring for. So I always ask, what is the most relevant experience, knowledge, and skills you bring to this job? Because that causes the following. It causes them to immediately have to figure out, well, what is this job? <laughs> and if they haven't been listening to what the job is, right there, they're stumped. And if they've got a high IQ, or, uh, and they understand you know, what this job is, they'll be very quick to then pick out what have they done in their past that is relevant to this particular job. And how well they answer that question is really about how well they've understood and how well they can connect. So there are a lot of things that come out of that. So that's one of my, my favorite questions. The other thing is people have a hard time sometimes bringing this out without talking about examples. Now, if you can get them to share with you something like their favorite example of a problem they've solved and how they solved it, then you'll get a lot of insight into the way they go about approaching difficult situations or problems or whatever. The fun part about this is the real question I'm asking is, what do you consider as a problem? So some people consider a problem as, well, you know, I had a, I had a bug and I had to solve it. Other people will say, oh, the problem I had was that our team was dysfunctional. And I had to figure out how to get them back together again to really you know, get our product back on track. Which guy are you going to hire? I know the one I'd hire. It's not the guy who's focused on the bug. He's focused on the team. So you, know, you have to think about what the, you're really looking for in the answer. But at some point, questions like this can draw out all of these things if you, if you, you know, get the, the right question for, for the particular situation. The important point I'm making here is not that these questions are the questions, that they are the kinds of questions that can help you draw out things like IQ and EQ. Now, this is a fun one. What are you most proud of in your work interactions? That brings out all sorts of things. You know, I hear stories sometimes about, well, actually, that I formed a team that actually plays football outside of work and we're incredibly successful. That was a real answer from a real guy I had. He was a very successful guy, actually, one of my best engineers. And, and that's exactly what he said. And, but then he then brought the whole analogy back and said, and by the way, the way I built that football team was blah, 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 blah. And this is how I do my programming. And this is how I brought it into our teams. And this is how we're successful. 
And I mean, the guy is off the charts. He's just a, a great engineer. Um, but not, by the way, as a team lead. Interestingly enough, he's an individual contributor. Uh, and it's because he doesn't actually like managing, but he likes being part of the team. And so what makes him really special is that he makes everybody else around him successful without being a manager, which I think is an incredible quality. That's a guy I'll hire over and over and over again. And by the way, here's the other thing. He is not the best programmer, i.e. he will not produce the best code. His code is perfectly good. There's nothing wrong with it. But his products are always going to ship on time. The quality of them is always going to be really high. And his interactions with the rest of the team cause everybody else, as I said, to do such great work that the end result is terrific. So he didn't have the EKS or uh, actually EKS, no, he didn't have the IQ that would have beaten everybody on the team, but he certainly had the EQ to make his team successful. That's the guy I want to hire. Now, by contrast, one of the guys that joined at exactly the same time as him had a real cultural misfit with us, believed he was the smartest guy in the room, and many times was a problem as part of the challenge to you know, rise to moving from V1 to do V2 to V3. And eventually, the team ejected him because he really didn't believe in something we valued very highly, which is that not the customer's always right, but the market's always right. In other words, it doesn't matter what we think is the best way to solve the problem unless the market can absorb it. He was constantly saying, yeah, but there's a better way to do it. There's a better way to do it. Yeah, but who cares if people can't actually take that, that uh, you know, application and use it? So it was a constant fight with what we had as a cult cultural value in the company, which was it's all about what the customer acceptance of the thing is and how they can adopt it and how they can use it. It's not about having the best solution because the best sometimes doesn't work. The best might be you know, brilliant, but just too hard to adopt, too difficult to integrate, for example. So you're probably getting a sense of this. And my point is you, in your own particular way, have to figure out what it is that you use as your questions to draw uh, out the IQ, EQ, and CQ. But at the end of the day, I want you to have one more little acronym, which is QC. I want you to have quality control. And your quality control, after you've been through all the analysis, should always ask one basic question. And we always did this as a group when we had group interviews. We came back and we said, do we all feel like this is net additive to the team? Because if it's not, if it's excuse me, if it's dilutive, forget it. If it's dilutive to the culture, if it's not additive to the you know, spirit of the team, it's not going to work. If it's you know, dividing people, if it's as opposed to multiplying their skills, it's not going to work. Now, some people don't believe in those group interviews. But um, I heard a really great example. I happened to be out to dinner with actually Tim last night, Tim Bertrand, who runs sales for Acquia. Regular check-in, and we're just having dinner and catching up. And he told me that the three key people who are running sales now, they don't even bother going to the second interview if any one of them even has a sneaking suspicion that they're not happy, that there's something amiss. They don't even bother. They just, if any one of the three of them, the head of sales ops, the head of channels, and, and Tim himself, they just immediately drop it. And why? So I said, look, I'm giving this class tomorrow. You've got to give me some evidence of this. He said, because we've occasionally you know, said, ah, we'll get around that. Ah, it's, it's just you. you know, hey, Mike, you, you know, you're, you're particular about that kind of thing. We'll get around it. None of those have worked out. So here's another little obvious thing. Trust your gut, because if you have some instinct, there's probably a reason for it. And if you really just don't feel like it's a fit, it probably isn't. And you're better off figuring it out up front. All right, enough said on the cues. And uh, I think you've probably got enough cues for this evening. But uh, please just remember one thing I said at the beginning. 
these are frameworks. They are not exact things. I'm not trying to say these are the answers, and I'm not trying to say these are the questions. They're just the experiences that hopefully can inform you to think about what you should put forward. All right, how many people in the room would like to hire A players? Okay, we're in the right room. <laughs> the bad news is that Google introduced Plus, and it seems like everybody wants to, uh, to hire A pluses now. And in fact, that's what I always say. No, I want the A plus players. So we're going to talk a little bit about what do I think makes for A plus players. Well, remember I said to you, we're very unlikely uh, to be able to get all of the particular attributes that make up you know, somebody's perfect EKS and IQ, et cetera. So let's talk about this in, in a context that hopefully is practical. And, and let's talk about what does it really mean to find A plus players and how can you actually apply it in practice. Well, my first three A's are aptitude, ability, and attitude. And ability is in the broadest sense. It's really in the, in the sense of suitability for the job. So let's talk about these three. First of all, it might be uh, obvious what I mean by these things, but let's, let's engage um, you, know, you guys in it for a second. Why is attitude important in a startup? You should always hire for will and train for skill. You just can't Ooh, like give, this. you cannot give will to people. Sounds good. So I like that, that uh, hire for will, not for skill. Well, um, let's dig in a little bit. Does anybody have an example of where somebody with great attitude has made an impact in their startup? Maybe, Russ, I, I could draw on you if we don't get an answer from the crowd. Anybody got an example of, of uh, where a great attitude has made a difference in their life? Maybe you've had it as, an, as a customer example. So I'm the fleet manager for Zipcar Boston, and uh, we have a particularly tough task ahead of us at the moment, which is merging our two fleets together between Avis and Zipcar. Um, and kind of like the toughest part of it is this fleet sharing operation, where we have to get cars from Avis's side into Zipcar's fleet for the weekend because we need to balance out utilization. And basically, it's a really quick turnaround with you know, getting 85 Avis cars in and then out on the same day. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to go in and out in terms of gas cards and easy passes, and it's not fun, especially if it's cold or, you know, if you have issues. And we were using Avis's labor, and, you know, it, they weren't get al getting along very well. Um, and we hired our own employee just to kind of make this problem go away. And it was a really important hire for us because this person is... Honestly, I was doing it all summer, and I w it needs to happen. It's the number one priority for the company. Um, and so the person we actually hired was one of the Avis shuttlers, and she's been fantastic in terms of manage. She kind of speaks the Avis language. She understands the admin side at Zipcar, which is pretty complicated uh, to make all the cars move around. She came in with a positive attitude and just crushed everything she did. Um, and so. In terms of the unique set of skills, you know, she was young, tech savvy, understood the Avis system. She was pretty much the perfect fit. Um, and I thank the Lord every day for giving me her. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, he asked how I found her. Yeah. Um, and basically, I just asked Avis, who's your best that you could afford to lose? Um, and they basically said, oh, well, here's a list. And I just interviewed them, and she just jumped out right away. You know? and for again, a, For a attitude or for, for a skills, or what, what jumped out at you? Uh, well, she jumped out for attitude. Uh, she seemed really eager. She jumped out for, 
you know, just understanding the technical skills part of it. It was actually fairly risky because she'd only been with the Avis for two months. Um, she was fairly new, but it, and just on her own side, there were some hurdles. I really had to like push her through our HR process, but you know, I pretty much fought for her. It went all the way up to our COO because there were some question marks in HR because they don't like to bring people that were just hired within two months and like promote them cross company and stuff like that. But I was just confident that like this was the person that could do this, speak both languages, make all the problems go away. And so, yeah, I mean, in that situation, it was perfect. So, so it's, a good, it's a great story. It's, it's, it's great as much for your willingness to push it up the chain and take it on as anything else and to pay dividends for you, right? So the attitude is one of those things that, you know, Michael said earlier about feeling it in your gut. Uh, that's one of the things that sometimes shows up. You know, it doesn't show, it's not going to show up in EKS or IQ. It's going to show up another way. I've got one quick story. Uh, we acquired a company of some of the most brilliant vision scientists, robot navigation vision scientists on the planet. Um, we, uh, we found them uh, on a piece of uh, white paper piece of research that one of them had published. It, was, uh, it, it changed the paradigm for the way people thought about uh, machine vision. Anyways, we go out there, we do the due diligence in the company, and uh, you know, the, what, what businesses do is they look at the, what the pro profile, the, uh, the spend line is, and they say, okay, so we can probably do it out these jobs. So we're having a conversation with the CEO, the founder of an idea lab company. Um, and, um, we said, so this is what we think the integration is going to look like. He says, you can't touch her. I said, what do you mean I can't? What do you mean you can't touch her? She's, she's playing like an office manager role. That's, that's something we think we can manage without. He said, you take that job out, you lose the entire company. He said, we hired this person out of a, out of a, uh, a rehab program uh, to come back to work. We hired her uh, because of her attitude. We hired her because she, there was nothing that she couldn't accomplish. She, she told us, she convinced us in the interview there was nothing that she couldn't accomplish, there's nothing that she wouldn't do. And we were a bunch of PhD scientists who couldn't get out of our own way, who made plotting progress, arguing with each other all the time. She was the one who showed up, and she, when we put up, set up test rigs, she was the one who ran, ran the test overnight and told us the next morning the results. She was the one that, that had pizza and food for us when we needed it at the end of the day. She's the one that enabled the rest of the team to be successful. And she had nothing in terms of qualifications in order to do the job. But she had something that we needed, which is this idea, is when you were talking about this jump in and do it, this is a jump in and do it attitude. Hire for will, not skill. That's exactly what she had. So uh, the, these people can be, this, this attribute is immensely valuable, hard to measure, and is, but it can be the difference between something working okay and something working wildly well. So I'm sure we could have a lot of stories to bring out tonight, but it's one of my three A's that, that I always recommend you put top of the list. Now, the second one is a really easy one to talk about in the startup world, which is aptitude. So for those of you who don't really sort of think about aptitude every day, aptitude is your ability to learn something quickly. And why is this important in a startup? In a startup specifically, think about this. If you're really going to do something innovative, you're going to probably move into an area that is unknown. It's a breakthrough. It's never been done before. So you can't teach people it in advance because it's never been done before. So what do you need when you get there and you're on the other side of somewhere that you've never been before and there are no rules and there's no basis for you to be doing whatever your breakthrough is, whether it's machine vision or it's you know, a new way of, of uh, interacting with customers for payments, whatever it is. You need aptitude. You need the ability to quickly switch into a new gear, learn a new subject, find a new way of working, 
figure out what it is that's the new set of boundaries and get into a place that obviously you can make an impact. That's aptitude. And for startups in particular, it's really critical. Now the, sec the third one here is, is ability, and, and I meant it in the true sense of suitability. So we've sort of covered a lot of that. But what you want to make sure here is that there's that fit that we were talking about earlier, that all of these different components now start to feel like this person's really got the package of whatever it is that you need in the way of experience, knowledge, and skills to, to be able to do this job. But without these other two, I'd say this one isn't going to do anything. Because I can tell you many, many times in a startup, you run into these situations where because of the way things have speed teamed or formed or you're facing some new problem you thought of or you got into a difficulty you didn't encounter, somebody with the wrong attitude who just doesn't want to learn, even if they've got all the abilities in the world, is just going to drag you down. But by contrast, when you've got somebody like they've come out of rehab and they don't know any better than to just fight their way for, through something and they have the attitude of can do and by the way, they really want to learn, they're the one who, who are most likely to go to plant that flag on top of the hill and get everybody else to follow them. And that's what it takes. And in many instances, the great startups show that DNA over and over again. And that's why they succeed. So quick examples of attitude. What I look for, problem solving. You know, we've already heard this from Eric. Fail fast and learn faster. You want to be the kind of person that digs in and is not afraid of failure. You've got to have the attitude that, you know, what can I do to make a difference as opposed to how can I marginally move the thing forward? Marginal improvements don't make great startups. Big breakthroughs do. And that takes boldness and it takes a, an attitude that says, I'm okay to fail. I'm willing to do that and I'm willing to learn faster. I've already talked a little bit about this, which is persistence. You know, there's the ultimate test of a startup, which is how well do they do when they really screw up? And when you really screw up, you have to have some persistence to say, you know what, I still believe in this. <laughs> I have the passion, the conviction, the belief, and I have the, the persistence to go to the next step and to figure it all out again. If necessary, as you know, that can involve literally throwing away your assumptions and going back. And in particular, getting to the root of the problem, issue, or opportunity. I have a post that's it's due to go up. I'm not quite sure when, but it's all about problem solving. It's about the, what I talk about is the eight levels of problem solving. So it'll go up some stage on my site. But what that really is all about is one thing, which is trying to find people who have the attitude that says, look, I'm not just going to fix the bug. I'm going to fix the cause of the continuous bugs, like I said earlier, which is that we're not working as a team to really understand how to build effectively. That's the root problem, root cause of the problem. And then if you go back and, and you start to look at the really great companies, they go one step beyond that. They say, well, why is it that we didn't build the right team in the first place? Well, guess what? It's probably a hiring problem. You go all the way back and say, we're probably hiring the wrong kind of people in the first place. We didn't hire people with the right kind of EQ. Then you go back and you figure out, okay, well, so do we have the culture right to do that? Or do we have the incentives right to do that? Well, wait a second, is the management looking at this thing the right way? People who are really good and have the right attitude consistently figure out how to go all the way to the root cause, persist to figure out what they can do to make a difference. And they participate in a way that makes everybody successful, not thinking about their individual you know, merit or particular reward or whatever. They figure out what are they going to do to make everyone successful, and they know that they'll rise as one of the boats on the tide at that point. And, and that's just a great attitude to have in a startup. All right, the pluses. So these are just purely things that I've you know, experienced myself. And again, I don't mean to say that these are what you're going to pick out. But here's what I've learned. This is the one, if I can find it early, I almost guarantee you I can build it around it. 
And that is, is somebody self-aware? Why is this important? What happens if somebody's not self-aware? How easy are they to work with? Well, <clears throat> if you're not self-aware, you can't have emotional intelligence. Because a lot of people, when they treat people, and you know I was a former kindergarten teacher before I worked at Behavioral Health. I'm learning that. But, no, so usually they follow the proverbial rule, treat people how you want to be treated. But emotionally intelligent people flex to where people are at, and they treat people how they want to be treated. So in order to have awareness without, you have to have awareness within. So that's another wonderful quote. You, I need to get you up here writing my sort of little anecdotes. So, uh, but I really love that. And, and I actually want to take that back to the EQ place, too, because I really believe that's true, too. If, if, you, if you don't have awareness from within, it's difficult to have awareness around you. Now, when it actually comes to startups, I'll tell you why it becomes super important. Because you're really trying to make sure that you build a team that can be successful around people's strengths. But how can you do that if you don't know what their strengths are? And nobody has only strengths, much as we'd all like to claim that. And the first thing I'll tell you is all my weaknesses, and there's a long list of them. But the good news is, because I know what all my weaknesses are, I know who to hire to work with. Like the first person I've always hired in one of my companies is the CFO or somebody who's going to run ops, because that is not my strength. It's absolutely my weakness. But guess what? I know that. I'm self-aware about it. I've actually been told by enough people how crap I am at it, that it's very easy to figure it out. But the good news is, once you know that, guess what? Go hire the best person to counteract for that and actually hopefully find somebody who's self-aware enough to say, no, that is my strength, but I'm not the guy who's going to go out and be the visionary and champion uh, you know, the cause. Hey, Michael, you seem to like to do that. Go for it. Now we have a team because we're self-aware about our strengths and weaknesses. We know how to work together. So this is so important in a startup because the more self-aware people are, the more easy it is for you to figure out how to fit them together. Now, if people aren't self-aware, some reason, sometimes it can be because they're not comfortable uh, to actually get to a place where they can admit their weaknesses. And that can be cultural. So again, going back to last week, try to build a safe culture. Build a culture where it's actually OK to say, I'm crap at x, and I need help with y. And guess what? If you could just you know, see me through z, that would be great. Because you know what? That's a basis on which to have a dialogue. But if you have to keep banging on the door to find out what somebody's good at and where they're screwing up and they won't admit it, it's going to be very hard to work with. So that's one of my pluses. The second one's an easy one, which is authentic, but it goes along with this. A lot of people feel like they've got to be something. You know, they've got to be like this or they've got to be like that. Really? I mean, why? You are who you are. Accept that. Figure out how to get comfortable with it. Establish where it is that that fits and where it can work. And lots of things can build on that. And then the last one, which is, is a, a sort of a fun one for the startup, is sort of the athlete. In the end, I don't know how many times we've been part of this, and in fact, I'm sure one, or two of, one of you two could jump in on this. You know you haven't got a talent pool that's going to fill the position for the particular experience, skills, and knowledge. And what do we do at that point? Maybe I could have you jump in, Russ. You're nodding <laughs> on this. You, you go to the, the athlete piece, as I call it. Maybe you have a different word for it. but. I think the Zipcar story is a great example of that as well. I think the Zipcar story is uh, about uh, someone who had a set of capabilities, had the right attitude, and could, and, uh, you know, could operate as an athlete. I think the other way to think about an athlete is someone who's, who's proven that they've been successful at everything else that they've done, 
and they and they may be they may not be the direct customer support person, but they've they've moved up the sales channels. They've uh, they've done another uh, set of work in another part of the organization that's been successful, and they've shown. I would think it was a combination between attitude and ability, and you they they're going to be good at whatever they do. They're going to be able to move one degree left or right to be successful. Exactly. So, so a lot of times when you can't find that perfect skill set or they haven't got the experience, I'll hire the athlete. I'll hire the person who's shown themselves in the past you know, to have been good at adapting and adopting whatever the particular job is that's, that's um, you know, come up in the past. And when they show those kinds of skills, generally speaking, athletes end up adapting to whatever new job you've got and showing themselves to be successful at that. So that's my three A's. That's my three pluses. And putting it all back together again, what I call the golden triangle emerges. If you get people who've got the right aptitude, the right ability, the right attitude, you've checked out they've got the right experience, knowledge, and skills, and IQ and CQ, and they've got all those pluses, you just hit a home run. You've got the golden triangle, as I call it. It's the combination of all those things. And funnily enough, you will find that they can be successful at the job. They'll really love it, and they'll fit and reinforce your culture because you've basically checked off those things. Now, it doesn't mean to say, by the way, that all these things are going to be there from every hire. But obviously what you want to do is establish some tools for uncovering these things. And that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time on now. Uh, and we're going, to, we're going to set you up for these, uh, at least one of these tonight, which is with some of the questions. So for EKS, largely speaking, it's not rocket science. You know, it should be on their resume or their LinkedIn profile, or you can get it through interviews. You should be able to extract that kind of information about what is their experience. You can read, the, you can read that on their resume. But don't get trapped, and I encourage you to, to think about this in your interview, getting them to recite their, their resume to you. That's your job. You can read the resume. What you're trying to do is get behind the resume and in the interview ask the questions that bring forward what it is that's actually enabled that experience to come out as the person that's in front of you and what will it do to help them set, to, to set them up for success going forward. On the IQ side, this is something that's specific to startups. So I'm not going to say this is applicable for for large companies, but it, it can be just as applicable. Look for proof. And you are almost invariably small enough, certainly in your early stages, that you can afford to say, hey, guess what? If you're looking for an engineer, let's get them to do some coding. Let's take a real world example. Eric, I think we do this at Acquia. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? We'll do a few things, and it, it, w the, again, another wonderful thing about Acquia is how flexible we are, and our uh, the different departments will do different things. So we do code tests. Uh, we will uh, we will give people very creative, kind of odd problems to solve, and see how uh, and see the type of code that uh, they get. Um, you know, there are some really interesting. Uh, it, we're in a unique space. We're in the open source space. Uh, and there's actually a, uh, a website uh, a, that helps analyze open source code right now. It's called Guild. Uh, so if you have a project out there uh, and you, what Guild does is it scrapes all the websites out there uh, and figures out what type of open source coding, uh, coding problems you've solved and what you've done and it analyzes it and, tell, and it will tell me how you scored in Python and what you could you could you have done better in PHP and fill in the blank um, and we'll take those as a as a benchmark but then we'll give you a code test we will actually we will say here's a here's a problem we need to solve 
and we'll make it realistic to what we're trying to do. We're not shy, um, you know, Drupal, again, open source. It's open for everybody. Anybody can go in and look at the code. They can fix a module. They can do bug fixes. It's great. It's interactive. So we give them and we say, here, fix this problem, please. And oftentimes it's not even necessarily like the, the it, one, one point that I think is important to make, it's not just about did they get it right, but I do want to know how they came up with their solution. And what was their process? What was their strategy? Why did they come up with that solution? It might not have been the exact most perfect code, but if they had a sound fundamental reasons as to why they did it in a certain way, that can go a long way. That gives us an indication that they have the right mindset, they have the right analytical tools that we need to, to move forward. Super. And so you've got plenty of ways you can do this. And, and I really encourage you to make them practical so that you're not guessing about whether somebody's got these uh, particular skills and whether they're actually going to be able to do the job. Get them engaged in it. You're small enough, I would say actually until you get to be you know, over a thousand people or more, and even then you can break it down departmentally and think about how to do this. Now the CQ piece is one that's less uh, easy. And so you know, how do you ensure that somebody's a good cultural fit? Obviously there's that gut uh, check that I talked about. But the one I'm going to encourage you to think about is the process itself. So here's a simple example. You know, we all know to show up for an interview on time, right? Pretty basic. However, how many people thank you for an interview? How many people actually then follow up and say, you know, hey, I've got some questions for you, or engage you in a way in the interview that you feel like, hey, I'd really like to have a conversation with this person? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. The best hire I ever made, I threw all my questions away and actually forgot I was having an interview because this person ended up engaging me so well that they completely took the process over for me. And I realized, oh my god, this is just somebody I want to work with. Well, that's sort of the observation I'm trying to get you to think about here is, what are the interactions you're having with this person? Is it really hard to get the answers out of them? Is this feeling natural? Is this a conversation or is it really a tortuous interview process? These things help you observe whether you think you've got a cultural fit. And so I'll always ask my team at the end, you know, did this feel like it was an easy process that we really enjoyed and this person naturally would just you know, flow right along with us? And if the answer is yes, you're probably observing a cultural fit. But I still encourage you to ask all the questions I mentioned earlier about from a cultural standpoint. But this is sort of the, the softest piece of it. So I have some uh, things that I'll, I'll bring to the fore in a minute on this. Okay, so the tools around this have to be supplemented by one very practical thing. And I really believe you should not ever skip this step. And that is going to get what I call real references. What's the difference between a real reference and the reference they give you? The answer is the real reference is not the one that was rehearsed. And anytime anybody gives you a reference, I'm not going to pay any attention to it. The references I care about, the ones I go find out about, that are not on their resume. They're not the ones they gave me. So I will go and try to find the references of peers, of people who worked for them, and people who they worked for. And all three of those are important. But pay attention to the details. Because, for example, when somebody says, yeah, no, this person was great, that usually means if they stop right there, they're trying to get you off their back because there's something else. They were great, and would you hire them again? Yeah, I'd hire them again. But in the intonation, was it, yeah, I'd hire them again? Or was it, yeah, I'd hire them absolutely in a heartbeat, and here's why. And references are tough because most people don't want to tell you what they think about people. So you're going to just have to develop a skill to actually be a Columbo, because really that's what it takes. You've got to play dumb and say, well, what did you mean by that? 
or can you tell me an example? Or what was the experience you had? Can you be specific? Come up with 20 ways to get behind what somebody's saying. Because it's not easy. And when people approach you for a reference, if it's somebody you like, you probably want to say the right thing. But they might not be right for the job. So try to be specific about why you like them or what you think they're good at. And here's the thing I'm going to encourage you. If you're either giving or getting a reference, remember in the end, you don't serve anybody well if you don't actually tell the truth because they've got to find the right fit. And so if you get them a job that they're not a fit for, you actually didn't do anybody a favor. You didn't do the person a favor. You didn't do the company a favor. Real references to me are authentic, very specific, and they get to the heart of what this person really is. So there's no shortcut to that. That's just plain hard work, and it's really worth doing the work on it. Eric. Yeah, just another thing. Always have the hiring manager do the references. It's okay. It's okay for, uh, for HR to assist or recruiters to assist, but always have the hiring manager do the references. You're, you're going to get more information. Um, one great question. Ask the reference, what skill are you missing now that this person is gone? What's lacking? What's lacking on your team now that that person is gone? And if they don't have an answer, how valuable were they to that organization that they left? So I'm going to have you stay right up here so we can skip right to the Acquia piece. Oh, okay. Um, so we've covered a lot of this, but to give us two minutes background on, on Acquia and how you're hiring at the moment. These, sure. are, these are your slides, so you hop through. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, I'll tell you just a little bit about Acquia, and I'll just tell you a couple quick stories. I know we're, uh, we're running up against time. So uh, w one of the key components to, uh, to what we do in delivering great digital web experiences to customers, uh, Warner Music Group is a perfect example. Um, we're, we're able to put together websites like two, these 250 artist websites on only three templates. But if you look at each of those 250 websites, you probably can't tell that they came from three, three templates. They're customizable. They can be changed around in any way that you want. They're incredibly agile. They can, they can, they can look and feel however the individual wants them to feel. You see David Bowie up there. Um, one of the things is when you need to move fast, you need to move fast. David Bowie, no songs for 10 years calls up Time Warner and say, it's Warner Music Group and says, I have a new song. Guess what? It's coming out in four days. Be ready. <laughs> what does Warner do? They say, no problem. Boom. They go in. They change, they change their entire website. They're ready for the commerce so that they can sell the music and they can launch. The two most, anybody, anybody this is always a fun one. Anybody know the two most important days for an artist page, for a musical artist page? I already gave you one. When they die. And when they die. <laughs> Absolutely. That is, the, that is the most important. When somebody dies, their web pages get hit again and again and again. Um, another one, uh, a little bit more, not, not a little more serious. Uh, during Hurricane Sandy, the MTA had over 30,000 concurrent users on a regular basis. This is per second people trying to access information. Think about that. 30,000 30, requests every second. Boom, boom, boom. Critical information that people need during a massive emergency. What previously happened with the MTA is that anytime they had a, they had a hurricane or they had a, uh, a shutdown or anything, they couldn't do this. And their website turned into basically just a text page. It just kind of said, 
please check back later. Now they're able to deliver important information. It actually turned into a place where people went for information about where to go for housing, for where to go for food, for shelter, and it became just one of the, uh, a huge success story for how you can be resilient, how you can make sure that your website is, is doing everything properly. Um, I'm actually gonna skip Whole Foods, uh, and I'm gonna go straight into our Acquia DNA, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this kind of quickly as well, because we've talked about a little bit of it. Um, committed to awesome, do the right thing. Jump in and own it, give back more, and inspire a little crazy. Um, I'll, I'll talk about Inspire a Little Crazy because it's a fun one. We just did this yesterday. Uh, we, we went, uh, Michael Scott was there. Uh, we that makes it crazy in and of itself. <laughs> yes, it was crazy in and of itself. We, anybody here of Lunch Beat? Basically, yesterday, Acquia sponsored Lunch Beat, which about 150 people showed up at District Hall in the Innovation District. We danced from 12 to 1. DJ was on, actually our co-founder, uh, founding member of Acquia, Jay Batson, was spinning the tunes. Everybody just danced. No alcohol. No alcohol. <laughs> Imagine that. That was the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, these, these are the things that we fundamentally believe make Acquia a fantastic place to work. These are the things we look for when we are hiring. Um, and then the other pieces, we, we talk about PIII, which is passion, integrity, intelligence and initiative. And I'll just talk one, a little more briefly about uh, passion. I'll leave the other three out there for you guys to noodle on. Passion doesn't just come from what you're looking for. It's not just about I want to see passion in the person who I'm interviewing. It's about you exuding that passion to that person because you need to match their passion, they need to match yours. If you're passionate about what you do and you're passionate about your startup idea and your company, that's gonna come through to the candidate, that's gonna come through to that prospective person who's going to help you get to where you want your company to be. And if you're not passionate about what you're doing, then they're gonna see right through that. They might not wanna join your company. It's not, it's not just about you selecting them, it is about, you, it is about them selecting you. So, we always put passion first. That's the most important thing that we believe in. Um, integrity, intelligence, and initiative. A lot of those things are, you know, th we have the three I's, and Michael has the three A's, and combined we have uh, AI. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, on the fly. Thank you very much, Eric. Okay, so uh, the next section is up on my site, and I've written it up specifically so we don't have to go through it tonight. But it's because there are questions I always get asked by startups about hiring. So they are, you know, should I hire known quantities? Should I, for example, figure out um, how to, you know, hire youth or should I always hire experience? Should I be going for one or the other? Uh, you know, how do I actually make sure I sell my company but listen to my interview? interview? These are really tough things. So I, I'm going to just turn it over to Russ for a second to, to give us a few words of wisdom before we kick off the actual um, session. We've got a, a few more minutes before we sh we'll have you actually doing the interview. Russ, what would you share from all your years of experience as some of the important things for people to think about before we get off, kick them off to do their interviewing? Um, I think I, I, uh, I've known Michael for a few years and I've, uh, I love, I've, I've seen parts of this presentation before. I, I, part of the reason I love it is because the parts he talks about are the parts that often get ignored. When you're starting a company and you're, wor and you're working to try to create something out of nothing, uh, you tend to focus on the content expertise that you need. You tend to focus on the, on the things that have to get done, but not the company that you're building. 
Last week, it sounds like you talked about mission, vision, and values. Uh, this week is the expression of those mission, vision, and values through people. My, I've, I've been lucky to work for some interesting companies. I've had uh, a couple of startup experiences in there. I've seen three industries start, grow, and begin to mature. Uh, I'm, you know, delighted that I, you know, at iRobot, I'm, you know, people think I have iRobot as ground zero for the robotics industry. Twenty years ago, when the company started, uh, there was one robotics company in Massachusetts called iRobot. Now there are 127. Um, and our challenge right now is to find the, great, find the greatest talent that wants to contribute to our mission, which is build cool stuff, deliver great products, make money, have fun, and change the world. Uh, it's a, a, those, each of those attributes we talk about in the interviews and we find out the passion that each person has around each of those topics. Uh, we, also get, we also do a lot about giving back. We look at their we look at their interest in contributing back. We're trying not just to, to be, cre be creative and successful now, we're trying to grow the next generation of engineers. We, uh, we, have a, we give employees two days a, a year to go teach uh, STEM education in schools or to do robot demonstrations in high schools or to get in front of the Girl Scouts and talk about why girls are needed in engineering. So it's part of, what our, it's part of our dimension of changing the world. The one thing I'll say, and I'll step down because the real work is next, is that you can't underestimate the importance of the people that you hire from the beginning. There, I, I, I have corporate marketing now, which is uh, which will shock Michael, but I have uh, I, <laughs> I have uh, corporate communications, PR, web, I, I own iRobot.com, uh, and I have the creative services team. And part of the reason I think that is is because when we started hiring, I joined three years ago. I said I wasn't going to let anybody in who couldn't represent iRobot's brand in their world because everybody is a network connection. Uh, we, we sell a consumer product, right? If we, we, we architected the, the, the process of interviewing so that even if people got rejected, they, get, they came away with a great experience because when they went into the store to buy something and they saw iRobot next to it, if they had a lousy experience with iRobot, during the interview process, they were less likely to buy our product. We knew it. Uh, we've, uh, Michael and I had a conversation about a, m a couple of months ago that inspired me. Now people who come to our website who are interested in our products, we also try to find out if they're interested in working there as well. And we're trying to, we're trying to extend that as well. But everybody is an extension of the brand that you're trying to build. You have a brand yourself. You have a set of values and a set of passions. Those have to be expressed through everybody you're building. The, most, the, the single most important person in the development of the culture, you learned this work last week, I'm sure, is the leader, right? And, that, and as a startup, the value, yeah, I said about it earlier, the value you're generating includes the relational equi the equity value, the emotional intelligence of the people that you have on your team and the relationships that they build and the relationships that they have. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Ross. For those of you who weren't here um, for one of the sessions where actually we did this in go-to-market, um, we talked about in startups, the brand is you. And last week we talked about leadership and culture and that leadership and from the top comes the culture. So uh, you just heard Russ reinforce that. And it's actually great to hear that you're doing that, that, that you're, uh, you know, taking over that literally by leading from the front. That's fantastic, it really is. All right, um, sorry, we have one more question, but I really want to get to the workshop right sure. after, so jump in. Uh, when you are hiring, when you are interviewing, you, you say I, but yep. you imply there's also a team of people in the room. 
interviewing these people. Is that is that true? Is it a group interview? Is it like one potential hire and three or four people from the company, or is it just you one on one? So I'll I'll let both Russ and Eric uh, answer that because everybody's different. Uh, I was answering in the very simplest of senses, saying that many instances I'm doing one on one interviews. I do know that some people do it differently. Jump in. It depends on the role. So uh, there's sometimes we will, we'll do it uh, serially, where we have you know a series of people interview. We always coordinate the beginning and the end. Michael talked, references it a couple times when he sits down with the team and he says, "Is this really someone who's going to be additive to our team, uh, or dilutive to our team?" So you do it that way, but you start out as a team and you end as a team. Sometimes uh, we do this a lot. Robotics is really the integration of a number of capabilities and technologies. So it's hardware, it's, it's uh, mechanical, electrical, uh, software. We will, some, depending on the, on the role, we'll have the team interview that as part of the process. We'll, the manager will, will, like the systems engineering guys, will, uh, the leader will take a uh, small pile of candidates and winnow it down to one or two and then they'll put them in front of the team. So it, it can be role dependent or it can be cultural dependent. If your culture is open and team based, you may want to make it a, t a team based interview at Nervewire. You know, the first interview was with the competency lead, the second interview was always with the team. And uh, so it, 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 re it can really depend. Excellent. So let me kick off the workshop. Um, we've got about 15 minutes to do this. I know we started about 15 minutes, so if people are late, so if people want to stay late, we can do it for a little bit longer. But I want to try to, to give you all a chance. So uh, you should all have a copy of one of these sheets, which has got a series of questions on the top. And if you don't, just stick your hand up, because Jennifer will get you one. So uh, in there are a series of questions. And each of them are divided by things like the IQ and EQ and CQ that we've been talking about. So what I'd like you to do is just find one person, could be either somebody next to you, but just you know, pair up. So for example, if the two of you at the front and the two of you at the front would like to just uh, get together. What I'd like you to do is just go through these questions, a lot of them I've already hinted at, and pick one of them that you think is the most important if you, if you had to just start with one question uh, to start an interview out with. Imagine you're a founder and you're trying to find a co-founder. That's as written at the top of the instructions. What would you look for? And just interview each other. We'll give you, give, give you about five, 10 minutes to do that. And, and then I'm just going to ask for a couple of you to share your experiences, and we'll, we'll have a discussion about it and draw some of that out. So uh, jump in. Make sure you've got paired up. And, uh, and, and give yourself a chance to sort of ask some good questions here. All right, the good news is uh, you've got the rest of your lives to figure out how to ask these questions and answer them. <laughs> we just wanted to give you a flavor of some of this tonight. Uh, so we've got five groups that have volunteered to, to share their experiences. And uh, Russ and Eric are going to take a moment to uh, give you a chance to share what did you learn, what, what question did you pick first of all and why, and then what did you learn by asking that person. So let's start on the right, Eric. Why don't you jump on in? Sure. Um, so why don't, why don't you share with us uh, what, what question you asked uh, your, your partner here? Well, one of, one of the questions that I asked him um, were what legacy do you hope to leave? And I found it very interesting. Um, he said that you know, he, wasn't a, he wasn't going to be Bill Gates. I thought that was very humble of him. Um, <laughs> but um, that 
he, he, had, he still pushed for higher standards and higher stability. So, you know, that humbleness and also his willingness to still move forward. Was it, a, uh, was it a complete answer? Did you feel that at the end of what he described to you that you felt satisfied with that answer? I thought it was, it was very honest and it also gave me a feel of um, you know, his personality. As the you know, conversation progressed, I learned a lot about how important family and community and other values are to him and that translated um, very, very influentially to team building with me so I felt like you know, if he was ever in a management position, that he would do what it takes to sustain that team. And it sounds like that came out organically, like not as a result of a, of a, of a specific question about what, you, what your fundamental values are. It just came out as part of that initial question. Yeah. Great, so that's, that's good. So um, I'll ask you now the same thing. Uh, what, what question did you choose and what did, what did you kind of learn from it? Yeah, I asked her, um, you know, uh, what's your passion in life? And uh, she 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 uh, uh, said that she loves to create, and and also um, from other aspects. And I asked her um, the balance in the balance in life, and she um, she treasured the um, the contribution to the community and the society, and also the uh, the fact that kind of you know impressed me that she is willing to sacrifice for the next generation. And um, I see that very sincere, uh, you know, from you know, what she, she talks. Um, and she said she likes to talk. <laughs> and so, so the, I, I, yeah, I see. Right, so um, being eloquent and uh, articul articulated is good, um, you know, in, the, in a good way. So I think, in general, I say that she can be a very good uh, managerial um, uh, 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 resource or type you know, for the organization. Great. So what I'm hearing here, which was great, just to sort of pull out a couple of examples, is when you ask the question about you know, what's the legacy that uh, he wanted to leave behind, you know, th that tells you a lot about somebody because it's a chance for them to say, well, you know, when everything's said and done, what do I want people to remember me for? Right. And so that probably gets to some core issues. And it was great that you asked that question. It brought out a couple of CQ issues like his values and EQ issues like how he wanted to work in a team. And then when you flipped it around, I thought it was great. What's your passion is, of course, you know, that's my favorite question. That can lead to a long discussion. Uh, the fact that you started talking about community, you could have talked about anything, right? You could have talked about work, but you chose to put that first. That talked to your, you know, CQ and EQ, the fact that you, you want to engage in that way. And, you know, your sincerity and the fact that you were open enough to say, hey, I'd like to talk. It's awesome. That's great. So anyway, thank you both very much for participating. That's great. So on this side, you two are a team yeah. to pair? Yeah. Did, um, did you ask more than one question or just one? Yeah, we asked a few questions. So right. Actually, so I didn't, I'm not sure if I judged the time, okay. right? I guess I can speak it in the mic. Yeah. Um, and I only have got a chance to, so my name's Tim and uh, this is Elise. Um, and it was mostly me interviewing her because we ran out of time at the end, but I think we both learned something from, uh, from the roles we were playing. Tell me the question that you learned the most from when you were interviewing her. Uh, sure, I mean, I started out with the question, uh, what are you passionate about? Because it's Michael's favorite question. <laughs> okay, you broke asked. the first rule. This is about you. You choose the questions. <laughs> and it seemed like a good intro question to kind of learn some general things about her. Yeah. Um, I think I picked up right away that she's a very uh, intuitive um, person, and it seemed like she had a very high emotional IQ. She started out by saying, 
um, you know, that she's passionate about problem solving and meeting new challenges and, and making people feel good, you know, like yeah. doing things that affect other people in a positive yeah. way. Um, and so we talked about that for a little while and, and, and on the emotional quotient side, I didn't ask her any of these in particular, but just asked her straight up, you know, do you consider yourself to be a person with, with a high emotional quotient and, yeah. um, you know, are you perceptive and do you, do you pay attention to other people? Um, and are you in touch with that? And she was able to uh, genuinely talk about that for a little while. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think she, I think she is. Um, there's one more actually. Um, on the values, um, this is one that I don't hear people talk about too much, but it's, uh, it's something that I have feelings about. It's uh, the, you know, what, is, what does balance mean to you in your life? Mm -hmm. um, I was happy to see it on this, this list because I think people can kind of they, they, they tend to um, automatically err on, you know, working a working lot. <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that, um, that there can be drawbacks to that. And so I asked her about that, um, and, I, and I thought, you know, if this was somebody I was actually interviewing, I would be happy to get these sorts of responses because she, uh, she's, you know, she was saying, well, work and, and life are connected, and if things are out of balance, it can have bad effects on both. And I That's thought, right. well, this resonates with me culturally, uh, and if, if I was going to be in a position of hiring her, that would be, that would be important. So you asked three questions. You asked about passion, you asked about EQ, and you asked... Uh, yeah, I think other ones, too. I'm just hitting the highlights. Oh, those are, so those are, those are the three you learned the most from? Yeah. Right. Would you hire? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I would have, I have to ask a couple more What's questions, but basically on that, well, she was charming. Right? Would you take the job? You well, she's got to hire me. She's got to interview. Oh, she didn't get a chance to interview. That's right, too. <laughs> but I mean, is, is there anything you want to share? Um, yeah, can I? Please. So um, I am Elise. I would like to share a little bit about uh, to be interviewed. So my last in being interviewed was happened like five years ago. <laughs> I haven't been interviewed for a long time. And five years can happen a lot. So when you ask me about the passion and there are two or three seconds, uh, my brain has nothing to, to say. And uh, then I found, okay, let's think about what happened in the past and the, the moments. And there are two moments come, come to my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my passion. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just want to thank for this chance to you know, I feel like maybe I should be interviewed every like month <laughs> <laughs> to keep myself calm and uh, you know be be self-aware. And ask you ask uh, my partner a question about uh, what do you not doing day to day. So for me, I feel like people when you come to interview a job, you are really in a very excited moment and you prepared. Um, prepared a lot, but the life is always peaceful. So mm -hmm. the day by day, the every day maybe can make some people's passion really drop down, and some people right. can really keep a very high level. So I want to know what what happened to its day by day time. Mm -hmm. So that that will make me see the common and the normal, mm -hmm. and as a human being and not a <coughs> hero or something. Right. So that, that that's right. what I ask you that question. And uh, yeah, he taught me more information than I asked, and uh, yeah, so I was satisfied so with this <laughs> this interview. <laughs> Thank you well, very much. You're welcome. The, the, I think the essence of the of the learning is the is that when you get beyond, uh, in some ways, I, I really liked what you said about you weren't prepared for the question about passion. You hadn't thought about it, 
in some ways, you're not, when Michael asked me that question the first time I met, the second time I met him, he asked me that question. I wasn't, that was one of the questions I wasn't prepared for. But, it, but the reality is, is it, 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 what comes out in that moment is really essential to who you are. It's really, it's not practice, it's not an audition. I, you know, one of the things about interviews you'll learn is that people reveal themselves in moments. And if you can ask the question that they're not prepared for, rather than the question that they are prepared for, you learn more. And so you, you both learn something about each other that was valuable, right? Yeah, fantastic. I also wanted to, you shared something that, that I hadn't revealed tonight, but it was a, an, an excellent point you made, which is being interviewed is actually an experience that you very clearly remember. And so if you've had a good interview, that obviously tells you something about the company. If you had a bad interview, that tells you something about the company too. And I'm amazed how many times that is ignored. You know, people start selling their company. You know what, the best way to sell your company is to have a great interview. Ask great questions. Figure out how to really listen. So thank you for bringing that up, that was great. All right, wanna move yeah. one more down the line here? You, yeah. okay, here you go. So talk about the question that uh, I guess you learned the most from when you interviewed him. Uh, hi, I'm Vidushi, this is Varun. So the question that I asked Varun was Michael's favorite yet again, <laughs> what are you passionate about? Because <laughs> I, I actually, I think there's a good reason why it's the, his most favorite question. Like I think it does reveal quite a lot about a person. Um, so Varun's answer was really interesting. He said that he likes to build things and see the impact from those things. Mm. And the example he gave was really cool which is that when he worked at Microsoft, he worked on the photo function in Windows 7. And the cool thing about that is that everyone uses Windows. And so he was in Rwanda on a project, talking to some children, and he was able to point out to them, all the way in Rwanda, the specific product that he built. Cool. And I think that Very reveals cool. quite a lot about right. what, you know, what motivates him and what drives him. That's right. Great. Yeah, so uh, I'm Varun. I asked actually Vidushi uh, the same question uh, yet again. What are you passionate about? And you know, I actually from the kind of the general category of questions, I really like that question. It, it I feel like this is a good question about like, hey, what's your north star? What are you mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. aiming for? Mm -hmm. um, and then um, amongst these other ones, kind of the day-to-day -day ones or the previous job ones. I, I'm not such a big fan of those just because I feel like sometimes those are very contest uh, contextual, like you know, right. your previous job, there might have been other million reasons why you know why you enjoyed it that, that's hard to bring out. And then also on the day-to-day -day one, like you know, sometimes it's like, well, I, it, it's hard to say like, um, you know, what you would love doing day-to-day -day because the, each day would be different. So right. I, I, I wasn't that big of a fan. But anyways, Vidushi's answer was, I actually really appreciated. She was like, hey, you know, I, I actually don't know what I'm passionate about yet. Um, I'm still in the process of figuring that out. And like, that was her first sentence. And to me, I thought that was actually really great because I, it revealed a great deal of self-awareness saying that, hey, I don't know what I'm passionate about, but here, the th and then she went on to figuring out what they are. Um, so she's like, I really like interacting with people. I like working with smart, genuine, you know, kind of authentic people. Um, I think you talked a little bit about um, impact and, 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 and that stuff as well. Um, so. Great, great. It's interesting, again, it's a similar example. I think the passion question has a great opportunity to, to distill out the essence of the person. You really find out the core. You found out a little bit about his core, and he found out about like, your core in ways that you might not get in any other kind of question, right? And the importance of EQ and the importance of how that aligns with what you're trying to hire for, right? So, great, thank you. Awesome, thank you guys.
So I'm going to ask these uh, the, the last two couples uh, here. Did you ask uh, other questions besides where are you passionate? <laughs> you did. Okay, great. <laughs> you have the mic. <laughs> okay, uh, I guess I'll skip the passion one because we, we did ask some, but but that was first. Um, I, I think uh, it went into values, but but then we went on to legacy. Like, what kind of legacy would you like to leave? And um, here uh, left um, told told me that he's he's working on a telehealth um, a startup and he wants to um, he basically wants to leave um, he knows that he's not going to be in his words Oprah Win Winfrey um, going out you know to different places um, being famous on every public channel but he wants to improve the lives of the people he uh, meets in person. And he was talking about how he wanted to um, help people, um, like say in rural areas, like rural Nebraska, um, see, um, basically get, um, kind of connect with um, doctors in, in Boston and basi basically facilitate that. And he also, um, in his values, he values education, um, his family values education, and um, especially for for girls, um, for people who wouldn't have the opportunities otherwise. So he um, he talked a bit about those, but and then we talked about management, and um, he basically said that like a management should facilitate uh, the work of ever, of others and make basically not micromanage, but make more possible. So. It seems like he's a, someone who really wants to um, improve and, and change the world, and this would be a. And I really got a picture of uh, what his goals and his uh, personality were. Um, so uh, I asked Marcella, um, you know, as I started off, I asked her, um, "What do you value most?" And one of the things that she asked me was in what context, and I thought that was really important because um, if I were going into an interview for a, for a summer camp and you asked me that question, I'd tell you that I love to bike and that I'm an avid biker. But if I were going into a healthcare interview, I would say I value access to care and um, underserved populations and so forth. So I think it was very good of her to ask that question. Um, I did ask her about management and um, she gave me a answer that was kind of parallel to mine in that um, you know, she felt that a manager was there to kind of help support, um, you know, a group and kind of be there for them when they needed something, but not to, you know, guide them there because it, you know, kind of stifles them. Um, so I think that she answered the questions very well, and there were the answers I wanted to hear. Um, if I have to say anything, I could say that maybe those answers could have been a little bit more personal. Um, because they were they were basically like what I wanted to hear and not more like why it was about like why her and why she was saying this like what experience she had with it but um but yeah overall I thought that was very insightful to start off by saying in what context so just to, to pause for a second what, you asked something there that was important how could she have gotten more personal and how could you have helped her because one of the jobs of the interviewer is to actually make somebody comfortable enough that they will share what their you know real personal sort of feel like values and stuff. How, how might you have done that? So you could have asked her to give me an, to give me an example of a time where she felt that she was managing a group of people um, and see what her response was. But we didn't we didn't get to that point. But um, but yeah, I think that's something I could have asked her. So yeah. So if you ever get to reading the website, somebody did ask me where all the materials are. Again, it's all up at startupsecrets.com or mjscock.com. The bottom line is. Um, 
<laughs> the interviewer's job is to make sure that you set the stage for somebody to be become authentic. And sometimes I find that that's actually hard. Like people are so tense and they're so nervous or they're so unpracticed or whatever. In which case, change the scene. Like literally walk them out the building if they need to. Take them for a walk or take them to the cafeteria, buy them a coffee. Or if you need to, just say, you know what? Is today a good day for you? And maybe the answer is no. Right. <laughs> and actually, you know what? If it's an important position, let them come back. Right. Um, it's, it's actually your job to figure out how to get that, right. you know, put it to the right. I don't know what you put I'm just going to jump in in a second and just say how critically important that is. And difficult, right? It's, I mean, when you're hiring, you're, especially at this stage in, in an organization's life, I said it earlier, every person you hire is an extension of your mission and your, what you're trying to accomplish. And so as the interviewer, it's kind of your responsibility to make sure you can authenticate them as, as who they are. People show up oftentimes, I don't, I don't know if suggesting it happened here, but people show up at times for interviews like it's an audition. Right, they study the website, they study the market, they look, at the, they look and see who else is in the company who they might know, and they try to make a connection. But it's, it's, it's a, they, they show up as an addition. It's, it's your job to strip, the, strip away that veneer to try to get to the, to the person. And I, you know, uh, take a walk, right? So instead of doing it in your office, walk them around the location you're at and you know, observe them. You know, that's one of my earlier comments. I said, so people sometimes reveal themselves in moments. Um, and that you'll get, you'll get their authentic self in a splash, and if you're attending to them, you can just use that moment to leverage into, uh, to discover more about who they are. Great, thank you. Like, last but not least, last you. Last but not least, yes. Okay. You got the smooth, you got the mic. Yeah. Um, so this is Chris, I'm Alina, and I asked him a similar question to what are you passionate about, but not quite, which is what do you love about your life? And I was trying to capture, I thought, you know, a good answer would kind of indicate what you're passionate about, but also reflect his values, um, which is the reason I asked that one. Um, and I thought his answer was really, really interesting, which was that at the moment, he loves the focus he gets from his work, his research in mm -hmm. a biochemistry lab. Mm -hmm. um, but he added, for now, which I thought was quite interesting because it's not, you know, a lifetime love necessarily. Um, so we talked about it more, and he talked about how he built, they've built this team over four years, and right. it really started as a very risky venture and really just him. And over the course of four years, it's grown quite large and gone beyond the research that he's doing to be something that other researchers are able to tap into. Yeah. And so I thought that was really interesting because it reflected that he was interested in work beyond his own. Yeah. Um, and then I thought the fact that he was saying that this is what he's interested in for now but is willing to change, and also how his research had kind of changed over those four years were both quite interesting aspects of the response. Um, Before we lose the thread, yeah, I, I loved your question. I thought it was great. What do you yeah, love about your life? But you also get an A-plus at my book for the way you were listening, because right. you picked up some nuances, like you know, he immediately jumped to work, which tells you he's passionate about his work. But the for now nuance was very key. Yeah. So I uh, give you a lot of uh, kudos for that. Very good. Nice. The, the other piece that I particularly enjoyed was that she asked the question, and she had already thought about why she was asking that question. Awesome. You know, you don't want to go into an interview and just have your list of ten questions you're gonna right. you're, you're gonna lay out there without some sort of expectation as to why you're asking those questions. There should be a purpose behind those questions. And she specifically said right up front, why do you love, what do you love about your life? 
here are some here are some things I might get out of this, and it might it might give you those those glimpses into the authentic self. And she's looking for that. So if you go in with some expectations of why you're asking those questions, it's it's much more helpful than if you're just going in and you're just asking a question blindly. Nice job. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I started with uh, uh, what are you passionate about question uh, <laughs> as well. And it turned out that Elena is working at the uh, School of Public Health. And it's sort of obvious that you can be very passionate about this type of work because other people benefit from what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it started. And then it went more into problem solving. So what type of problems she is passionate about, uh, how she likes to apply her specific skill set to break the problems into smaller pieces mm -hmm. and then solve these kind of problems. Mm -hmm. So I learned uh, how she approaches uh, her work mm -hmm. and why she's passionate about this and how she thinks she can make an impact by finding mm -hmm. the problems she can address with her skill set mm -hmm. and then make a difference based on, uh, on the results of this work. So uh, I think I got to the, bo to the bottom of what drives her in her day-to-day like motivations, right? Fundamental motivations. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, w I want to thank all of you for, for participating in this. Was this uh, we did this the very first year in the workshop, but it was uh, nowhere near as much fun as you made it tonight. That's right. Uh, so this was great. I also want to thank uh, Eric and uh, Russ for, for joining us. And um, I'm going to just try to wrap up briefly. You don't need to move uh, by saying there is uh, one thing that really stood out for me. If you look at all the answers that we got, how many of them were really about IQ? Almost none of them, right. which to me means tonight was a success mm -hmm. uh, because the IQ is the easy part. That's the piece you can figure out. But it looks like, frankly, uh, all of you found your own way to bring out EQ and CQ and figure out what was this person really about. So I really congratulate you. I think it's fantastic. It makes me feel proud to uh, to be a part of this. So great, great fun. Nice now, I'm going to uh, leave you with my final question which is an, an open question, it's up on the screen, uh, which is, what else should we know about you? And, and the reason that I always have this question at the end is that it's sometimes difficult to actually give somebody a chance to tell themselves about you, no matter how many questions you ask. And so by asking this last open question, you kind of leave the catch-all. It's like, okay, I might have missed something about you. Or what if you leave this room and you go, damn, I wish I'd told you know, Vid about this, or I, wish I'd told Alina about this, or I wish I'd told Ross about this. This question allows you to do that. It's mm -hmm. the, you know, the catch-all. So I'll leave you with that. The other thing that you already did, so I left this to the end just to point it out, is that you can tell, you know, there was a lot of this in the, uh, the workshop that came out. We were trying to discern three things. You were trying to make sure that you were listening to uh, uh, what their responses were and observing how they responded uh, through your questioning. And, and you did all of that very, very well. Now, the piece that's not so obvious is the little subtlety behind this. People have needs, wants, and loves, and many other things, but separating them is important. So the observing, I thought you did very well. But uh, let's just get to the specifics of the needs, wants, and loves. So sometimes people need to get paid a certain amount. Does that mean to say they love you know, their job? Not necessarily. They may want, for example, uh, and, and need to be recognized. Uh, they may want, for example, to learn. That may be a, a different thing. Um, and they may love to contribute to make a difference, for example. Those are all different things. So here's an example of what gets very difficult in interviewing, and it's, it's what I thought you guys were doing very well, which is a nuance, which is somebody says, I really want this job. 
How many times do you hear that? Okay, but why do they want the job? Is it because they're going to get paid more? Uh, is it because they really love the work? Or is it because they absolutely have to get a job at this particular point you know, to meet some you know, uh, green card, for example, requirement? By the way, which has happened to me, uh, that exact problem. And so they're convincing you. And they're convincing you because you know, it's a genuine need, but it doesn't really get to the heart of what they actually want to do or how they want to contribute. So just try to separate those things. Um, my, my pure view on this thing, just to having paired you up, is that there's only one secret that I really want to leave you with that's, that's uh, most important. It's all about finding a mutual fit. In other words, not only are you trying to find a fit for that candidate that will meet your needs, but you also ultimately want to make sure that it's what they are going to have to meet their needs. If it's a true mutual fit, it meets their needs, it meets what they want to do, and it's going to ultimately put them in a position where they love it, I think you've made a great hire. And uh, I would never sell if you don't find that, because ultimately it's going to come undone. It just won't be sustainable. And particularly in startups when you have you know, small teams, and as Russ said so well, where these teams really are the core and the defining essence of what your company is, it makes a huge difference. And so one more to, to uh, you know, follow the jobs theme, always one more thing. Uh, that is be patient, hire the right person, not the, right, the person right now, because it'll always feel urgent. It'll always feel like you've got to just hire that person. You've always got a hole. But if you can hire the right person and make that difference, honestly, you will see your company soar from that. So once again, thank you to Russ. Thank you to Eric. Thank you to all of you. And uh, look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>